And welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, we got my friend and who is just a brilliant political mind, a great journalist, uh, and now I can actually say an amazing author, none other than Natasha Alfred. How are you today? I am awesome. Bakari, you know you're my big brother in my <laughs> head, right? So this is this is like just sitting down talking to my big brother in the business. You've always looked out for me. You've never been stingy with advice you know, connections. I mean, you are the ultimate example of somebody who opens the door uh, for others to come behind you. So I'm honored to be here. And you make us proud. I mean, your moment uh, a few weeks ago on national TV that went viral, um, I think was just, a, I mean, it was God working. He was winking at us because I don't necessarily think it was a coincidence, but he was winking. Um, and then there, here you have your book out, um, American Negra. But before we get into that, I, I, my show, I like to ask all of my guests the same first question, which is to walk us through the arc of their career. And you've worked in finance journalism. You're an author and an advocate. Walk us through your career arc to the work you do now with the GRIO and CNN. I mean, the the journey to get here is really the the crux of the book, right? This is a message about we're told this is what success looks like in America. You know, it's making good money, it's going to that cubicle job. And so my first job was at a hedge fund. I worked for the largest institutional hedge fund in the world, Bridgewater Associates. And I thought I was going to business school. You know, I thought that I would somehow be some kind of corporate leader or, or a leader in some sense. And I wasn't fulfilled, I wasn't happy. And so I went to education. I taught in classrooms in Washington, DC and New York City. Uh, and from there, I really started to ask myself about impact. And so I moved from education in classrooms to education policy. And then finally, the, the big dream, which was journalism. Um, and so what this book tries to do is take off the mask, so to speak, and talk about some of the reasons why I was unhappy, even though on paper I should have been, and what it took to really find work that fulfilled me. And this book does all of that from your particular perspective, which is unique. But let's talk about the title of your book. It's the first thing that jumped out to me, American yeah. Negra. First, unpack it for me. What is an American Negra and why did you choose that title? Yeah, I, I chose it to be somewhat provocative, right? Some people are afraid to say the title. They're like, yo, is that a curse word? <laughs> like, did you, did you put Negro on the cover of the book? No, Negra translated just means black woman. Right. If you walking through, you know, Washington Heights or you're somewhere in Latin America, somebody might call you a negra or, or morena. It's essentially identifying you by the color of your skin. And I wanted to show that whatever world I walk into, I am a black woman, whether I speak Spanish or not, you know, whether I've traveled around the world, I'm always black. And so there's a narrative that exists that a lot of Afro-Latinos aren't proud to be Black or they don't know they're Black. And so this is a declaration that I'm Black, but I'm also proud, and it's in the American context, right? Black Latinos or people who live at the intersection have always been here. We've yeah. gone to HBCUs, been part of the civil rights movement, all of that. And so I wanted to show an American story from that perspective. Who is your audience for the book? And the funny thing about it is... When, you, when I asked this question, I realized that I thought my audience for the book would be one thing and it was consumed by that plus more or kind of different. But who is your audience for the book? And kind of inversely, um, what what has been the response? And are you surprised by your audience's response to the book? Yeah, I mean, I'm still learning. It's been amazing. We did a New York City book launch and the church was packed. <laughs> I was like blown away. 
um, there were parents of children there who were like, I have a child who is black and Hispanic, right? Or, you know, I've, I've felt like an outsider in some way. What do I tell my child about belonging? So I see young people loving this book. Um, I see parents of multi-ethnic families loving this book. But also, you know, I'm African-American and Puerto Rican, right? So that is a particular, you know, history on one side and a particular history on the other side. And what I want is to bring two communities into conversation with each other. Mm -hmm. A lot of African-Americans and Latinos live side by side. We go to the same schools. Uh, we share resources and sometimes fight for resources. And so what I'm hoping is to bring both communities into conversation with each other to see what kind of shared history we have, but also to investigate what does political coalition look like, yeah. especially as we go into election 2024, because none of that can be taken for granted. You know, one of the questions that I have that is, is it's kind of, it stems from a question that I asked Cicely Tyson, um, who was 90 when she wrote her memoir. And she said, because I finally have something to say. So this is your first book. It's a memoir. Why did you choose a memoir? I don't think enough people talk about the messy young years. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, you know, you wrote My Vanishing Country, a beautiful narrative, and you did it at a point in your life where you'd accomplished so much as a young person. You could have just been celebrated as a young person and waited until, you know, you ran for office again. We know you'll probably run for president one day yeah. and write your memoir, but you gave us the gift of seeing what it took to get to this point. And that's what I I wanted to do. I wanted to talk about those hard moments in your early years so that a younger audience can see what it takes, right? They can see some of the mistakes that they should avoid when it comes to, you know, dealing with management or their brand or decisions about their personal life or their health, right? I wanted to unmask all of that. So that's why I said now, uh, when you've lived a lot of life as we have in your mid 30s, you know, I, I think it's incumbent upon us to share that. Um, but there's more to come. So this is this is step one. And I'm sure that there will be more after this. That's true. Um, how did writing this book change you, if at all? Honestly, I don't know if you went through this, but like I, I, I healed a lot of broken relationships. Mm. I don't know if you experienced that, but there were people. I healed who myself. Called. You healed yourself, right? Yeah, it was right? therapeutic or cathartic or whatever the right word is. But you get what I'm trying to say. It was. It was like self-cleansing, like, wow, it's all out there now. I can unburden, I've unburdened myself. I don't know about healing relationships. I mm. might, that might be more my fault than the, <laughs> the process of writing a book. But yeah, so talk about that process of healing relationships. What does that look like? I mean, my dad was like the biggest one. How many times have you been with a family member and you're with them all the time, but they don't really know how you feel about certain things that happen? And I needed my dad's blessing to write this book. So I showed him chapters and I showed him the manuscript. And there were things that we never talked about that he read from me through this book. Um, conversations that, you know, I just thought we would never have about pain, but also about um, just things I wondered about him and his life. You know, he grew up in the civil rights era. He dealt with a lot of racism in upstate New York. Um, and I saw him struggle as a black man in upstate New York. Um, but I never got to tell him how it felt to be the daughter witnessing that. And also the impact sometimes of his anger and his frustration on me. And so um, we healed as a father and a daughter through me writing this book. And I'm really glad 
that we had these conversations because without the book and without knowing it was going to be public, I probably never would have approached him about some of these things. I probably would have just continued to live um, and let it go unaddressed. So that that was one of the greatest things. But yeah, I feel the same way in terms and was of- And let me, I mean, a personal he, question, since you're writing a memoir, was he responsive to that? He was, he actually was. And he was committed to the story being right. Like he would be like, oh no, nah, that that detail, like, no, it was actually this. Or, you know, your, your, your grandma didn't say that, she said this, right? You would be surprised. You would think people don't want you to tell certain stories when in fact they're like, no, just get it right. So uh, my mom, it was a little bit different. She's a really private person. <laughs> so she I tell some stories about my mom too. My mom went through it and she wanted it to be right. And then she couldn't believe I was writing it. And she was like, you're going to put me in this light. I was like, well, is it accurate? And she said, yeah. And after it came out, I think it was helpful for her as well. Our relationship hasn't gotten closer per se, mm -hmm. but that out, that honesty out there was necessary, I think. Yeah, I don't think sometimes when you're talking to your your family or your parents, they realize like it's going to be out there. <laughs> you know, they tell you the story. Um, so that's what we went through as a family. But there was healing. And as you said, there was a freedom because when you are a high achieving black kid, so to speak, there's a lot of pressure to present as polished, to be perfect, to be twice as good, to always be intelligent, to always know the answer. And so by unmasking and showing the weaknesses, showing the moments when you didn't know what to do, when you made mistakes, I think is freeing for other young people to see that and to know that you don't have to be perfect all the time. That's true. You know, let me ask this question before I, I want to move on and talk to you about some other things, too. But the most important question of the show, whether or not it's in the middle, the beginning or the end is uh, where can people buy the book? When is it out? Where can people buy it? I know it's already out, but talk about yeah. where they can buy it and how can they follow you on social media? I'm blown away. The book right now is the number one seller on Amazon under Black and African-American history. So you can go to Amazon order it. It's American Negra, Natasha S. Alford, or you can go to my website, AmericanNegra.com and buy it through an independent bookstore. But yeah, it's out there. The story out is out there. there. And that, that's yeah. so dope actually seeing your work in like Barnes and Noble and Target and all of these other places <laughs> that, that is out there. Let me ask you this question. I want to pivot a little bit because you play a unique role in being one of the few people who has a platform. Um, both in print and on TV. Talk about the the importance of Black media generally and the critical role you all are going to play. Um, one, I want you to break it down in two answers. Throughout history, and, and you know we're in Black History Month, talk about that throughout history. But two, how important are y'all in 2024 for this election coming up? Listen, Black media is the front line of the fight for truth and the fight for civil rights. If you read histories of Black journalists from the 1960s, this incredible journalist, Dorothy Butler Gilliam from Washington Post, she talks about how Black journalists had to dress up as preachers, right? Because they couldn't be seen as press who were reporting about certain abuses, <laughs> right? That's Police crazy. abusing, pro they had to disguise themselves. When Dorothy Butler Gilliam was reporting in the South, you know, she once had to sleep in a funeral home because they wouldn't allow her to actually stay in a hotel. So overcoming segregation, we did all of that just to get stories to our community. And we held America accountable uh, to live up to the values that America is supposed to espouse, right? And so we're, we did that in the past. Today, I think we're important because we live in a blog era. 
I mean, we we look at blogs that, who have all this power. Some of them really don't get it right. You know, they'll publish a story. They don't verify what they've published until after, after the lie has gone around the world, right? There's a difference, I think, between journalism and simply blogging, which is about access, which is about, you know, just cultivating relationships so that way you can get that interview. Journalists have a commitment to the truth above all, no matter who it bothers. And so outlets like The Grio are really important. Outlets like Ebony, those legacy outlets, because we are doing real journalism. And I, I hope people understand that like you drive what is covered. So if you want to see more politics, you want to see more substance in our media, you have to support it. You have to read those articles, right? Support the journalists who are doing that. You know, the, the celebrity news and the entertainment news, it always does numbers. So so it often reveals that that is where, you know, the the, the focus is. And that's not just a Black thing. I think that's an American cultural thing. But there's so much knowledge out there that we're we're bringing to the forefront. And if more people paid attention and shared, I think it would grow in terms of its impact. Talk about this. I mean, you, as you walk through this age of Trump, how necessary is not just the griot, but somebody like Byron Allen. You always talk about the the self-made black man who writes your checks. Talk yeah. about the relationship. <laughs> I mean, you have to have people who are just not afraid, right? Like, I love working for a black billionaire because it's like... <laughs> He ain't afraid of nobody. It's just so great. Like, I don't have to worry about publishing something and somebody calling me and saying, we got to take it down. Like, we're going to speak the truth regardless. And what is unfortunate is that Donald Trump, um, he has found surrogates. He's found Black surrogates who go out and who manipulate the truth, right? And who erase his history of racism. You know, they sort of have reinvented the man and they've twisted a lot of the truth about what has been accomplished in the Biden-Harris administration. It's not that they are, you know, un, like they're, they're immune to criticism. There's plenty that you could critique about them, but they've been able to suppress uh, all of that information and deflect and throw a lot of distraction into our conversation to the point where people don't investigate what has actually happened. Yeah. Um, and, and they're persuaded, they're persuaded by very little. So yes, I think we're important because we are elevating, you know, what, what really is happening in terms of policy, in terms of where the administration stands, but also where they've fallen short and you need outlets that are willing to do that. Talk about your role on CNN. Um, you know, it's different. It's a, it's a different type of pressure that you're on because it's not many of us, but when you go on, I mean, I know people hear me talk about it all the time, but as a black woman, as American Negra, how does how does it feel when you're going on advocating for a community that needs your voice so much? I mean, it's it's a lot of pressure. You know, I called you when I got this job. <laughs> I saw, you know, I called you. I'm like, what do I do with this? And you told me to just keep showing up. This is about showing up, yeah. being at the table every single time. And so um, I do feel pressure and, you know, my personality, I'm not super confrontational. I know that people saw that clip and. You weren't confrontational in that yeah. either. You were, yeah. you were assertive and matter of fact, yes. but you were not confrontational. Yes. And I think the challenge is knowing when to 
to assert, right? Because we can always go on there and sort of do the political analyst thing. We can talk intellectually, but to not lose your heart in those conversations, right? Uh, yes. To say like, yo, let's be real. Like we can talk about all this insider DC politics, but like, what do the people care about? So that is my like greatest call to action whenever I go on television is to remember the people that I'm representing and try to make sure that the conversation we have relates to what they care about. That's the hardest part. I mean, you don't want to speak for the culture because we're so diverse and there's so many different. You don't ever want to be in a position where you lack the humility and say that I I am the voice for this culture. Yeah, but there's on no the one voice. Yeah. On the flip yeah. side, you're like, I got to represent us while I'm up here. Uh, yeah. Then I can't go back home if I don't represent us well. They're going to tell you about yourself. Like, I can't just sit here and let you keep repeating that Republicans free black people from slavery. Like, hello. <laughs> like, what is happening right now? You know what I mean? We, we're watching our voting rights being stripped away, reproductive rights being stripped away. Like, I cannot let you continue to to spin on television and let it go unchecked. Yep. Um, so, yeah, you know, we don't we cannot speak for everybody, but we have a responsibility to tell the truth. And I think that, you know, again, I'm a, I'm appreciative that you have supported me in that and encouraged me to do that um, because there are so few of us. I'm learning from you. Tell me this. Where will you be um, in the next four or five years? What's next for Natasha Oliver? Oh, it's whatever God wants. Um, you see at the end of my book, I'm here at Princeton University. I'm finishing a master's degree in public policy. And I felt like I needed to understand how, how solutions come about. I didn't want to just be a person on television talking about the problems. And so I've spent the past year in deep study really thinking about how do we make housing affordable? You know, how do we address the maternal mortality crisis? How do we get people jobs? Like, yep. these are the questions I've really been wrestling with. So we'll see what happens after school, you know, after this election. Um, but I have an assignment in front of me and I'm just, you know, trying to get it done every day. Natasha Alfred, you all go out and buy the book, American Negra. It is a great, great book from a great human. We want it to be a New York Times bestseller. The Bakari Sellers podcast is going to do everything we can to get it there and keep it there. Thank Shout you. out to you and all of your loved ones. Have a blessed day. You too. Thanks, Bakari. <laughs>